Do you or have you ever owned or tried a wearable sensor? Manish Juneja? Please try them all. Well, maybe not all, but definitely a lot of them. See, his primary curiosity lies in data. So last year, he did an interesting experiment. He bought and simultaneously tried out 10 devices, 4 smartwatches and 6 activity trackers. Wondering how it went? Keep listening. Dear listeners, welcome to Medicine Today on Digital Health, a podcast produced by me, healthcare and medicine journalist Tiasha Zaitz. I work for a Slovenian medical monthly journal for doctors and pharmacists, Medicine Today, where our main focus is in novelties in therapies, medicine and healthcare policy. Today, I'm talking to Manish Juneja, not a medical expert, but someone who worked with data to improve decision-making across a number of industries. What drives him is finding ways to use data to improve health of everyone in the world. Last year, he was ranked 7th most influential person in digital health, and the year before, he was ranked 10th most influential in wearable tech. I have to apologize for the sound again. We had technical issues, so Manish sounds a little bit like a robot. Let's call this a shade more digital episode. So, before we start, just a quick invitation. Look at the other episodes of the podcast as well. You can find Medicine Today on Digital Health on SoundCloud, in iTunes, short episode descriptions are on Medium. And you can, of course, follow me on Twitter under at Z-A-J-C-T-J-A-S-A or uh, send me a suggestion, comment on my email tjasa.zajc at finance.si. Thank you for listening. What I wanted to start with was an experiment you did last year. You bought 10 devices and I'm really curious how that went. Yeah, so what I found out is there is a variance uh, even between having uh, the identical fitness tracker on the same wrist that they, they weren't generating identical results. And so whilst that may sound alarming, to us that, well, how can we rely upon this information if you have the two identical devices on the same wrist and they're producing a different number of steps? And the, the, the important point to be aware of here is that, A, uh, these are not medical devices that I was testing. Uh, they are just um, consumer fitness trackers, so they're not meant for making a medical decision. Uh, and so whilst they may not be 100% accurate, uh the the point is that they are uh, accurate enough to help you understand trends over time i you know so if it's saying you're walking 10,000 steps a day this week uh then it allows you to to relatively understand okay well last week i was doing 8,000 so roughly i'm doing 20% more so from that perspective it's accurate enough mm-hmm. for that use 
Yeah, that's a very important point. We were also discussing in one of the previous episodes about biosensors, even for serious medical conditions. It's not only about data being completely correct, it's just uh, also about that they are good enough to help even a patient uh, in his or her uh, disease management. So... Um, How long has it, has it been since this experiment and what has changed for you in that perspective? So do you still use any of the devices? Uh, what I've effectively settled on for my own personal use in tracking my activity is I use a Samsung Gear S3 smartwatch on my left arm. Um, and I find uh, I use that A because it's got a battery life of uh, for up to four days, which is quite useful. So not having to charge the device every day uh, is um, is useful. Um, second of all, not only does it track my activity, but it also tracks my sleep. Albeit I'm not sure I trust the sleep detection a hundred percent, but it does a, a fair enough job to, in terms of that again that trend and that guidance. How do you see the relationship between all these data just being inter interesting uh, compared to actually having some medical or health value? That's, that's a good question. Um, so at the moment, it's interesting for me because sometimes I'm able to uh, share with my friends a screenshot to say, hey, look, you know, I did uh, 16 miles of cycling today and then I motivate a friend of mine by WhatsApp to do some exercise as well. But from a clinical or medical perspective, um, it's still too early to understand whether the data I'm generating as, a per as somebody outside of the healthcare system How useful is, is it for my family doctor, for example, my GP in London? If uh, my, my doctor has, is responsible for the health of 5,000 patients in his neighborhood, right, that he has on his list, and out of those 5,000 patients, he can see at an aggregate level, uh, you know, every week he gets a list generated that says um, this proportion of his patients have uh, their physical activity has dropped from, you know, three miles of walking every day to less than a mile uh, over the past three weeks. So it's a, it's a consistent trend. And, you know, uh, depending upon what that doctor knows about those patients, he may be able to decide, okay, let me make a phone call or send a text message or uh, depending upon the country, he may even pop around and say what's going on. So basically what you are describing is almost a sort of a clinical trial for tracking the population, which would be possible in case a whole population would have these specific devices and would be uh, using them. Well, so, you know, there are uh, like companies like Fitbit, etc. have already got these these big databases of their users or their customers in different parts of the world. So they're already collecting these, these statistics at a sort of a, uh, at a larger level than just individual users. The public health agencies may at the moment carry out surveys from time to time on a sample of people and say, can you remember, you know, how much do you typically exercise a week? And then they get an idea of, of, of what's happening in the public from that sample of people during an interview. 
that the reason why uh, these, and I, I want to call them sensors rather than fitness trackers, because ultimately these sensors may become embedded in, in things that we already own, right? Mm -hmm. So like they may, I already have a, a prototype of spectacles that have a, these um, activity trackers built into the, the frame of the spectacles, right? So nobody would even know that I'm wearing an activity tracker, but it's actually in my spectacles. People ask me often, uh, when do you think uh, products like wearables will take off because they are still very much a, a very small market, right? In terms of, I think, uh, even in, in the US where they're most advanced in terms of market, that it's still, you know, you're talking about maybe it's less than 15% are actually using them on a regular basis of the population. And I, I personally think that um, this will take off when, we have to wear these devices and sensors, right? So from an example of uh, healthcare, in those countries like the UK where the healthcare is paid for by taxes and it's free at point of care, uh, they may say in the future, and in fact, it's not just me who's thought about this, uh, if you get diagnosed with, let's just say, a chronic disease like diabetes or something else, you must agree if you want to keep having your free healthcare you must uh, wear a sensor or have a sensor on your bed that tracks information and we get that information about your health and everything remains free. But if you choose not to be tracked now that you have a chronic disease and we can't access that data whenever we want, then you actually have to uh, start paying uh, some money towards the cost of your care at, at, in each visit, for example, or maybe your medication is no longer free and you have to start paying for your medication. In theory, I can understand this uh, economic logic, but from the political point of view and knowing how difficult it is to change free healthcare systems, I must say I find it a bit hard to believe that would actually be uh, possible because it's such a hot political topic. It's, you could compare it to uh, telling the um, uh, those that smoke that they will have to pay for their costs of potential treatments in case they get sick. The, the argument here is basically that the, uh, the, the, the healthcare system will want access to that data about you and what you're doing, right? So uh, it's the data here that's valuable. And so most people will probably say, well, if it means I can keep getting my free prescriptions, I've got no problem with uh, letting the, the healthcare system have access to my data or wearing a smartwatch or putting a sensor on my bed or whatever. Uh, you know, if you look at 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, uh, we're going to, we're going to have very tough, difficult scenarios and questions to face with regard to how we, uh, how we pay for healthcare, how we pay for aging populations that are uh, getting more sick, and then, and how we ensure as many people as possible have access to healthcare. And that nobody is left behind. So these are all very tough questions that are even in rich countries like the United States, they're having to think about, well, how does the, you know, how do we use uh, technology to, uh, to help us meet those challenges? You're dealing a lot with uh, data and data analytics. You also dealt with that with, in the pharma uh, industry. 
how accurate is the research we're doing with data from wearable sensors when we know that for one thing, um, the sensors are not completely accurate. The, on the second level, uh, people are using different sensors and are also differently disciplined in terms of recording um, their information. So we've got a lot of problematic points in terms of accuracy of data. When you look at the, even the analysis of, of real-world data today, such as the data from uh, insurance claims database or from electronic health records database, then the, the data is fairly messy and because it's just been an input by humans, sometimes there's mistakes. So you, the, when you're doing that kind of research, you, you know, you, you can't expect perfect data. So you'll implement some rules to, uh, to help, um, define your data set that, it, that you, that you remove a lot of the noise. Um, you know, it's a challenge really for the research community here in terms of uh, adapting their methodologies. And some some already are. So uh, I believe it's GSK, actually, that have been uh, experimenting with the use of Facebook data. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Facebook, all of Facebook's data to see if the data from Facebook would provide an, a, a quicker way of detecting uh, safety or any safety signals with drugs on the market compared to traditional means. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of rumors going on around Facebook entering the healthcare market because they know so much about their users. I mean, those rumors have substance in the sense that uh, if you think about one organization that is collecting information or engaging with you on a daily basis and they, and they have a global user base of 2 billion users interacting with them every day, they have the ability to send a message to 2 billion people every day about eating more fruit and vegetables or going to bed earlier, right, or mm-hmm. something else, right, or even, uh, you know, here's a, uh, here's a, a discussion group about a drug you're using, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I think Facebook has huge potential as a platform to reach so many people around the world. Now, one of the examples uh, given is with chatbots, right? These mm-hmm. uh, these programs which are, uh, are, are powered by some form of artificial intelligence, essentially an algorithm that is going to, uh, you can have, you know, for example, in mental health, there's one called Wobot, W-O-E Bot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been developed in the US. Uh, it's just been launched recently. Uh, so I started experimenting with it, right? And what I find is that the the chatbot isn't particularly good at this point. There are some basic things where the chatbot is not only wrong, but potentially harmful to people who really are depressed or in a a low state of mind. So I'll give you an example. The other day when I was testing it, I I responded saying uh, I don't have much energy and I'm feeling really sad. And it actually replied by telling me a joke. Uh, and a really bad joke as well. A lot of improvement still needed there. If you told a human therapist, if you were feeling very sad in front of a human therapist and you were crying, and then it responds by basically trying just to tell you, they respond by trying to tell you a joke. I mean, you wouldn't feel like that therapist was properly trained, right? Mm -hmm. 
There's a few different exp um, aspects in terms of mental health issues and digital health. On the one hand, the problems that you described, and of course, on the other side, the potentials for those that have difficulties with human interactions to be able to get some sort of help. I guess, of course, when we have uh, services that are better than the one you just described. I do think that these chatbots in mental health may have value. The value is yet to be defined because it's still very early days. So whilst I, I gave an example of where, you know, it, I can see that it's failed, it may be that the fact that, especially with younger people, right, that if Facebook Messenger is one of their most common forms of, of chatting with friends and family, that for them, Being able to discuss their mental health with a chatbot is nothing strange. It is almost normal. Since we are um, talking about mental health and anxiety and uh, facing with distress, on your blog you described um, your personal story, how you tried the virtual reality um, solutions when you were dealing with bereavement. Could you uh, tell us a bit more about that experience? Virtual reality allows you to put on a headset and enter a, you can choose to enter uh, one of several different virtual rooms and uh, other people uh, could be in those rooms from around the world in virtual reality. And so uh, I, I was feeling a little bit disconnected from the world. So I thought, let me put on this VR headset, ended up going to some barbecue room where it was a, a, a computer generated uh, backyard of somebody's house. Uh, you could move to different parts of the backyard. There was a swimming pool uh, and you could speak to these different people as well. And I spent about 15 minutes in there talking to different people, just small uh, general topics. Uh, and then when I uh, took off my headset and I returned back to my reality and I was sitting alone in my room at home and I felt even more uh, disconnected than I did before I tried that virtual reality social experience. It actually made me feel worse. But, uh, you know, for example, when I've used uh, th those apps in virtual reality before many months ago, I remember... Uh, meeting, uh, talking to a, a lady again. She was from Australia and she was telling me that she is in, in these uh, social rooms in virtual reality every evening for the last six months and that she is so afraid to leave the house because she has some, uh, some issues there that, that for her, this is the best way of her leaving the house and meeting people. Uh, when it comes to these technologies, um, I firmly believe that, you know, everybody will be on a different point of the spectrum. So uh, in your experience, when you were, when you put down that virtual reality headset, how did you then cope uh, with your um, bravement problem? It's just uh, spending time with friends and family. One of the things I've turned to um, exercises, so what I've been uh, getting in the habit of doing for the past few months is uh, actually waking up uh, before sunrise and going to the park and either going for a walk or cycling for a couple of hours. And I wouldn't say it's uh, helped completely, uh, but I, I, I can feel that it's, uh, it's improved my sleep and my mood and ultimately my ability to cope. I, 
I hope to see more of more tools and techniques, whether they're digital or not, created uh, and uh, by ordinary people for their community. So, you know, when it comes to the Amazon Echo and the Alexa skills where you can uh, you can ask the smart speaker questions and it will respond accordingly. Um, at the moment, it's mostly uh, uh, the health skills tend to be developed by healthcare facilities or people in the medical system. And it will be interesting to see what happens when uh, Alexa or skills for Amazon Echo are created by patients themselves or their family members for their community, right? How would the engagement be stronger because you have uh, a different insight? It was a study where they actually looked at apps on smartphones created by uh, healthcare providers, by software developers, or by patients and their families. And I think they found that uh, the actual um, monetization was higher uh, on with those apps that were created by patients and their families. So um, from the perspective of everything you've been doing research on, symptom checker apps, chatbots, patient-generated health data, where when did you shift your interest from pure data analytics to data analytics in health or digital health? What drove you to this area? It was probably about five, it was about five years ago, a bit longer um, that I was working at the uh, pharmaceutical company GSK, and I I heard um, a talk from some leaders from Silicon Valley, and they talked about this future of sensors and data and Internet of Things, and I decided simply just to uh, to uh, leave the security of my career, and I uh, just went to explore this world of digital health. It's been over five years of just. Uh, uh, meeting lots of new people and being exposed to different startups and different business models and different types of data. And again, I think uh, we are still in the very early stages of this reinvention of health. This is going to be a, a multi-decade journey, uh, to, you know, where all these different emerging technologies are going to get to play a role. As fast as we think digital health is moving, um, you you can't just you can't just uh, inject digital health into the existing system and ins- and expect the impact to be immediate absolutely because the existing system where it exists which is in developed uh, countries is usually too uh, big too complicated and too rigid to even accept novelties that's why the developing countries are um, so much better with implementations of new technologies because the need there is just so much more different uh, that the implementation is possible. You're using a lot of different uh, devices, trying them out just to give some assessment of how they work or how useful are they. Which device uh, did you regret buying most? Probably uh, there's a device called the Scanadu Scout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I gonna, that was a few hundred dollars and that was uh, supposed to end up being, uh, uh, almost like a Star Trek tripod you'd yeah. hold to your forehead. And, uh, now it's just uh, an expensive sort of piece of plastic that's sitting in my house. So it's not useful. Where's the problem? 
the problem is that I think they uh, withdrew support for the product because uh, they couldn't actually get the, they weren't able to uh, take it to the to its destination in terms of what they were trying to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big problem when it comes to digital uh, health solutions. What we are discussing today is more wellness than um, actual health. But still, um, if we expect these solutions to be to have an actual impact in terms of prevention, it's quite problematic that um, a lot of startups die and then you end up with a solution that can't be fixed because there's nobody that could fix it in case it gets broke. Since you are also looking in the area from the perspective of uh, a visionary point of view, you know, just uh, setting aside the, the issues, but looking more at the potentials, What's your uh, realistic uh, estimate or idea uh, on where we could be in, let's say, uh, 10 years? Have you ever considered that? Uh, we are going to be looking at scenarios for different people with different diseases where they will be having uh, much more of the healthcare delivered out of the hospital into the home, Right. So you can start to see that already with uh, with certain medical devices which have been approved where you can have a diagnostic done anywhere, anytime using your mobile phone. Uh, the people who are getting older uh, and they, it's not practical to put every old person in a nursing home. And so they want uh, people to grow old in their own homes and be able to live independently. So this will be a big driver in defining technology that allows people to be monitored at home or mm -hmm. outside of the hospital, right? So you can't build more and more hospitals. You can't just have more and more doctors. So I think it, within 10 years, we are going to see a shift. Is It's not too difficult to imagine a future that in, in certain countries in 10 years' time, uh, you do your, uh, uh, you take your own blood at home and you do a blood test by putting the drops of blood on your smartphone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just remembered what I wanted to ask you before. And when it comes to wearables and all these uh, devices, I think one crucial issue from a society point of view is that um, these gadgets are not uh, cheap. So even though we're talking about affordability in many cases, when it comes to prevention, I can't help but wonder if these uh, sensors are going to increase the gap between the poor and wealthy and uh, healthy and um, sick. Because, you know, if you are, uh, if you have more money and you can afford all these things, yes, you can uh, take better care of your health. Uh, well, I mean, uh, actually, If you look at places like India or China, they have uh, uh, wearables which are on the market for selling for $10 or so, right, which have all the functionality of a $100 or $150 wearable in the United States. So there are cheaper products available, um, and they will get cheaper. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I personally think that if this, if this revolution in digital health is implemented correctly 
it actually has the possibility of uh, reducing the inequalities in health rather than widening them. So yes, I see what you mean about, you know, at the moment, some things are very expensive, whether you do the direct to consumer gene- uh, genetic testing to understand your risk of disease, and, and, and even, uh, you know, uh, or even a smart what for $300 is still probably quite expensive for a lot of people out there. But, you know, these technologies become what we've seen in the past is technologies all, all, always start off very expensive and they trickle down and become, uh, you know, cheap. How many gadgets do you currently own and what do you do with them once you test them out? I imagine that you have a lot that you don't need. Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, some of the technologies that I've, I've uh, had and no longer use Um, I've donated to uh, friends uh, and medical professionals who are uh, wanting to use it for their own research. Some of them um, I uh, sold on eBay um, and, and a few that I still keep myself. And uh, maybe eventually I might have uh, like a sort of a, a museum of digital health if I kept all of them. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely be something um interesting and probably valuable in a few 10 years time it's the same as with old computers you know when people regret throwing them away yeah just one one last question um is there a product in the pipeline that you look forward to coming to the market what are you more more most excited about in terms of development of digital health solutions I, I, I mean, I've always loved cars. And what I find really interesting is the fact that you have car companies like Toyota and BMW and Mercedes and Ford who are look, and Audi who are looking at putting sensors in the car that will monitor your health as you're driving, right? So, uh, again, it, it's less of a, less interesting to those who don't drive. But I just think it's it's so cool that, you know, you could be driving in the future on the way to the office and, uh, you know, your car has monitored your health during your commute. And um, we're talking about a, a future that uh, your your route to the office may be changed depending upon how 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 you slept, right? So, or who knows, like, whether the, your car company becomes... A new revenue stream because it becomes it has a, a, a it has a, a, a wellness wellness division. A self-driving car can save a driver who's sleepy and tired. There are people who are looking at this as a potential scenario. It, it could take us uh, many decades before many people have autonomous cars, even though they may be available in five years before they become truly popular it might take a long long time but what people are thinking about is that if you have an autonomous car and you're sitting in your autonomous car on your way to the office that it, it what if the car was able to do some kind of basic uh, medical examination or checkup or even a, a a medical procedure a basic one whilst you sit in the car hmm brush your teeth <laughs> yeah well um definitely a lot to be excited about until we get there at least what we have is science fiction movies 
Yes, yes. Uh, Manish, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talking to me. Thank you. You're welcome. This was the 13th episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. I'm really excited to announce that next time my topic is going to be blockchain in healthcare. So stay tuned and I hope it will be published in two weeks. Until then, all the best, stay happy and healthy.